Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Well, um, thank you guys for having me. Uh, as you mentioned, my name's Pete. Um, my wife, Jen, is down there. I have three beautiful kids. They're getting big now, 21, 19, and 17. My, my baby's a senior in high school now, and he's kind of not a baby anymore, a little football player and all that. But um, I think when, when uh, you're a guest at a place, or especially uh, like you're a guest, and some, some of you may be a guest here today, and I'm a guest here today, and you kind of get first impressions of people. You just meet somebody, and especially when you're the guy in the pulpit, I think sometimes as pastors, we, people look at us as like, he came out of the womb knowing the Bible, and you know, this is what he's always been like, and uh, that, that was not the case for me. Um, uh, it was in 1995 uh, that I began to investigate and pursue Jesus and, um, and received him into my life, and my life began to change, and um, and I, I can, just as we were sitting in the time of worship and listening to the songs and, and worshiping together, I was just thinking of the life God has put together over the years. Uh, and uh, and I, I would say this to any person. Uh, it, it's the same for each of us. It's the same for each of us to initially come to Jesus and build a life by saying yes to him a whole lot of times in a whole lot of little things. Like, yes, Jesus, okay, Lord. And that over a long, long period of time, like anything else, like eating well or exercising or doing a good job at work, it has a cumulative effect that builds up. So God's been super good to us. And, um, and with that, part of the way that I, I came to know Jesus is I was a very skeptical man before uh, before I did come to know him. I didn't like all that religious talk. My wife and I met up in, uh, I was talking with Eddie in the sound booth earlier, we met up in Tallahassee, Florida. We're diehard Seminoles. I don't know if that offends anyone. If it does, this is your opportunity to be forgiving and gracious, and that's what the Lord sent me here for today. But um, yeah, we we met up there in Tallahassee, and uh, and I, I, I just kind of lived a, a party lifestyle, and um, really was making a mess of my life. But some of, Jen was my girlfriend at the time, and some of her family, they knew the Lord and began to share him with us, and I didn't like that. I hated that, because it was like cramping my style. I would feel guilty when they talked to me, and I didn't want to hear anything about it, but without going into all of the detail, there was a point where that kind of changed in my heart, and I was very interested in the things of God but I didn't know if they were all make-believe. I didn't know if it was all just some fairy tale, just a bunch of religious talk for crazy religious people. And so I began to read books. I felt, I, I felt like I needed to get the issue settled. So I began to read some books that are a category of book called apologetics in the Christian faith, and they mean defending the faith. And what they do is they give good, reasonable answers for the authenticity and trustworthiness of the Bible, of Jesus, of his work, etc., I began to read those, and 
after a period of time, um, I was persuaded and I was convinced. And so, and the path that got me there was, it began with what we call the Gospels in the Bible. There's four books in the Bible, the first four books of what's called the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these uh, little sections of the Bible called Gospels, they tell the good news or the story of Jesus' birth, his life and ministry, which would be his words and his deeds, his death and his resurrection. And so these apologetics books that I were reading, they really kind of made the compelling, and in my mind, irrefutable case, that the Gospels were accurate historical narratives. They were telling the truth about what really happened. They weren't just religious writings. And so, uh, and I would encourage you at any time, a couple of books that would be worthwhile to, to take some time with is a book called More Than a Carpenter by a man named uh, Josh McDowell. There's another one called Case for Christ by a man named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was actually a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune whose wife had come to Christ and he set out to disprove the truth of Jesus and ended up becoming a believer as he looked at the, the authentic truth of the trustworthiness of the Bible, the accuracy of the record. But I say that to say this. My heart is very close to the Gospels because before I believed that the Bible was the Word of God, I had to first be persuaded that it actually just told accurate history. Not that it necessarily was inspired, which I have come to believe and be persuaded of at this point in my life, but I, I began with, can I just trust what it says, that it's accurately recording what happened? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written at around the same time, uh, very close together. They're called the synoptic gospels. Have you ever heard the word synonym? It means words that kind of mean the same thing. Well, synoptic means look the same, synoptic. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. The way I would put it is, it was like three people who went to the same concert and sat real close to each other. Now, they had a little bit of a different experience, but they, they were at the same concert. They saw the same things happening. And so the three of them tell a richer story together, complementary, not contradictory. They were written, those Gospels, sometime between 45 and 68 AD. It's debatable, but certainly early on in Christianity. But the last Gospel, John's a little bit different. And... Uh, it, it appears to have been written much later, sometime between 80 and 90 AD, at which point the, all of the other apostles have been martyred. They've sort of sealed the testimony of their writing with their blood. They have, in a real way, said, I cross my heart and hope to die that this is true. And so John's gospel comes along later. And, it, and John is older now, and he's seen his friends his buddies, who they, they walked through so many things with Jesus together. He's seen them martyred, and he's seen the spread of Christianity over the known world. And he seems, and this is the way I view it, it seems like he looks back and he says, well, he says this at the end of the Gospel of John, after, after kind of writing the whole thing. He said, many other things did Jesus. 
And if, if, if they were all written down, the whole world would be filled with the books of him. He says, but these are written. What he wrote down, that you may believe that he is the Christ, and believing you may have life in his name. So John decided later on that, hey, the, the, the other gospels are great. Those are my guys. I love them. I miss them. I'm looking forward to seeing them in heaven. You know, he, at the time of the writing, is likely on an, a, in a prison island called Patmos um, for his faith. And he, he, he says, I want to include a few important stories that the other guys missed. It's almost like maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the concert, maybe they had like ground seats and they were in the crowd, but he had like a mezzanine view over there. He bought the ticket later. He traveled with them to the concert, but he's like, all right, guys, I'll see you after, and he sat up here. And he, same concert, same, detail, same um, details of what happened at the concert, but his perspective and the things he saw were important. Does that make sense to you guys? All right, so I want you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I've titled this, The Most Public Private Conversation. That's the name of this message, Dave. The Most Public Private Conversation. We're going to be in John chapter 3, and I'm going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for this time that we can gather together and meet with you. And Lord, what a treasure that you recorded this conversation, that you stirred the heart of what at the time he wrote it was an old man named John who thought the world needs to hear this conversation. Thank you that your spirit moved him to do that. And thank you that we get to open this up and, and have a peekaboo inside that story today. And Lord, I want to pray for this group of people here today, every one of whom you love, every one of whom you've made, every one of whom you poured your blood out on a cross because you wanted to make them right with you. And so, God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't come into the world to condemn it, but that the world through you might be saved, Lord. So we give you this time. Speak to us right now. Work over and past and beyond my and any inabilities I have. And thank you, Lord, that ultimately you're the teacher. And so... Teach each of us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at John chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read the first two verses and then comment, and we'll work our way through this text down to either verse 18 or 21. We'll see how time goes. So it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So I'm going to assume I, part of my ministry background is I grew up teaching children's ministry. And by grew up, I mean grew up as a Christian. I came to know the Lord when I was in my early 20s. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't know the Bible at all. So I learned the Bible teaching the Bible to kids. So the, the people who have your kids right now are rock stars. <laughs> They're superheroes right now. So that was my Bible college, was learning it. So I'm going to assume that you may not know anything about uh, the gospel narratives. And, and if you do, then hopefully you're not offended by a little remedial repetition here. But um, the Pharisees were the sort of religious ruling class of Israel at the time. 
It was a patriarchal culture. And because the Jewish faith was so central to Israel, these guys were leaders in every way. They didn't have a bona fide separation of church and state like we have. Uh, And so you had an elder man would be highly respected, a Pharisee would be religiously respected, and because it was... He was elder and he was a Pharisee. He'd also have tremendous influence within the community. So this man, Nicodemus, he's, he's one of them. And just a cursory reading of the gospel narratives will allow you to recognize that the Pharisees are sort of the main opposition of Jesus throughout the narratives. As you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you see that these guys have a big problem with Jesus. I won't go into all the details But what it ultimately came down to is he threatened their position of authority. It says of Jesus that the common people heard him gladly. Like the normal everyday Joes, the construction workers and the cabinet makers and the farmers and, you know, the the auto mechanics, they they were like, "I, I understand what that guy's saying. It says that he spoke with authority, not as one of the scribes or Pharisees. In other words, there was a, just too many big words, too much, too much theoretical stuff when they talked. And they'd lose people. They'd put people to sleep. But when Jesus talked, it was like, I get it. I get what he's saying. And so as he was coming along, he was really threatening their position as, uh, as top dogs of influence among Israel. So... It's interesting, then, that this man, Nicodemus, is coming to see Jesus. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, if I were in a children's ministry class, I would ask you guys, why do you think he came at night? But we won't do that, because that's awkward, and I'm not going to make anybody raise their hands. But, um, But one of the most common beliefs, and it's mine, is because his peer group, his friends, were really anti-Jesus. But something was going on in his heart where he wanted to go talk to him. And the first thing I just want to make, just the first point that's important, is it should be on the screens, it's that he came to Jesus. Nicodemus came to Jesus. This cannot be understated at the beginning of this story. Everything that follows... The thing that we're learning about today is because one man said against his, against peer pressure, against society, against everything, he said, I want to go talk to him. I want to go talk to him and hear what he has to say. Now, we're going to learn later on that Nicodemus is actually the teacher of Israel. The Pharisees were a religious ruling class, but they taught the people. They taught the people the scriptures, at least their interpretation of them at that time. And Nicodemus was the teacher of teachers. He was highly respected, probably elderly. And the way I view him in my mind is some kind of cross between like, like, Dumbledore and Gandalf and like some kind of like wizard with a long beard and and white beard you know what I mean it's like with robes and everything like that like as if you can paint a picture of wisdom that's what he looks like and this isn't what the text says happened but this is what happens in my mind I think that he's sitting at dinner time and he's just kind of you know 
playing with his food. It's like turning over in his head. He's thinking about, he's like getting, getting the courage up to, I'm gonna go talk to Jesus. I'm gonna go find that young man and talk to him. And his wife, we're gonna call her name Hannah, she's like, what's wrong, Nicodemus? <laughs> You're not eating your food. <laughs> you know, and, and he's like, oh, nothing, Hannah. I, I need to go for a walk. And he kind of pulls his shawl up over him. He doesn't want anybody to recognize him out in the streets because he's about to go do something he doesn't want anybody to see. He doesn't want anybody to know. And it was my personal experience that that's the way I first came to Christ. I didn't want anybody to know I was considering Jesus. I didn't want anybody to know that my life was in turmoil deep on the inside and that I didn't have answers and I couldn't fix things. And so it started very privately where he just said, all he could do was come to Jesus privately. That's all he could start with. But that was good. That was a good start. So, and I want to say, here we are. You guys came to church, but I want to encourage you, like in this moment, let's move a step beyond coming to church and let's just come to Jesus right now. Meaning like, I believe your spirit is here teaching. You can look past this bald guy with big ears and a big nose (laughs) and trust that Jesus himself wants to speak to your heart right now. So put aside the I'm in a middle school cafeteria auditorium and say, I'm here to meet with Jesus like that guy did. So he says something incredibly humble here. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. And so you see part of what's going on in his mind is he's seeing some of the stuff Jesus is doing. And I want you to understand that this is a very religious man. This is a very religious man. He's a religious leader. And yet he's saying, with all my religion and all my studying of the scriptures and all my teaching of others, there's something present in your life that I've never seen before. Something real, something authentic, something that isn't just talk, something that's heavenly. And he calls him rabbi. Jesus was probably in his early 30s right now. Very early 30s. When I was in my early 30s, I had hair. You know, it's like, that's a long time ago. That's a young man, you know? And so for him to call Jesus rabbi was a real humbling of himself. Everybody else called Nicodemus rabbi, a, 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 a title of respect. So, and he pays Jesus respect. He says, I, we know you're from God uh, because of what you're doing. And he calls him rabbi. And you would think that there would be some kind of, oh, thank you, Nicodemus, and pay some respect to him, but Jesus goes in hard. Look at verse 3. Right away he goes, it says, Jesus answered him and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's pause for a second, because Jesus starts to talk to him about this thing, this new birth, this born again. This bo- actually, the word for again there actually is better translated anew or from above. But we're going to use those interchangeably, all right? We're going to use those the same tonight. Some kind of new birth. But I want to pause for a second. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. Nicodemus buddies, right? He's having a conversation with them. He's correcting them on some stuff. He's arguing with them. 
And he says this to them. This is John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So he's talking to Nicodemus' friends after this conversation, and he's telling them, you know, you guys think that the more you study your Bible, the better you are with God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. Studying the Bible is great. But according to this text, what is the purpose of studying the Bible? It testifies of Jesus so that we will come to him that we may have life. So back in our chapter, chapter 3, what does it start with? Jesus, or Nicodemus came to Jesus. And Jesus said, when you come to me, that you may have life. So now Jesus is going to begin to talk to him about life, about real life. All right? So that's what he's talking about here. He says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, briefly, and I won't go into this for a long time, but we know the kingdoms of men, don't we? I mean, they vary. You know, I was speaking with Augustino. He's from Brazil. And so that's one of the kingdoms of men, Brazil. My, my parents are from overseas. My mother was from Ireland, father from Italy. So those are some of the kingdoms of men. And you can look across the world at the kingdoms of men. They all different. They're all different, but they are all still just kingdoms of men. But Jesus is talking about a different kingdom here, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And he says that unless a person, he says, most assuredly, the old King James says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, truly, truly, most assuredly, have no doubt about it. This is not debatable. This is certain that unless someone's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So one of the first points I want to make about this, and this is we're really going to be talking about, what is this born again? What is this born from above? What is this born afresh or born anew? What is this exactly? Because Jesus says it's essential. And John, the author of this gospel, said, I have to get this conversation recorded. Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't get it. We have to get this in there. The Spirit of God moved him to write this. This is such an essential conversation. So he says... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So one of the important points of this idea of this new birth is it's necessary to see and know the kingdom of God. It is necessary to see and know the kingdom of God. And I'm not talking about man's religion on planet Earth. I'm talking about the kingdom of God, like the living God, really working in real life among people and a real coming kingdom that we'll be a part of. And Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, you can't see it or experience it or know it in any way. So it's like, whoa, I don't know what born again is, but I want to experience, I want to see, I want to know God really working. So Nicodemus says to him, and I love the interplay here, and I think that there were a lot of smiles and laughter here, and Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's like, it's almost like you can see Nicodemus saying, you know, I thought you were a teacher from, come from God, but you're talking a little crazy, buddy. You know, it's like, I'm not sure you know what you're talking about. And he says, look, I'm an old man right now. 
how can I be born again? You know, and every, every mother who's ever had a child, they're like, we're happy to get them out. We never want them back in. <laughs> it's like, and then when, when they get out of our house, we want to get them out of our house to like move on and pay your own bills, you know. We kind of want them to come back after that, but it depends if they're behaving or not. But anyways, Jesus answered. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, same thing. He starts the same way, verily, verily, truly, this is absolute. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I want you to note the differences between what he said the first time and the second time. It's kind of a repetition, but it's also an amplification. One of the things he says, he doesn't say see the kingdom of God. He says enter it. That means become a part of it. And I would say both becoming a part of the kingdom of God here among the kingdoms of men and also entering the kingdom of heaven after this life. And so Jesus is really saying, like, there is no way unless this experience, which he's calling born again here, and which has other names in other parts of the Bible. But if that doesn't happen, you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to know the things of God. It's all just going to be religious smoke and mirrors to you. It won't be a real God really working in your life. So and he says you won't. And look at what he also says. And the first time he said born again, here he says born of water and the spirit. So when a woman has a child, right before she does, her what breaks? Her water breaks, yeah. So, you know, that's our first birth. You know, I know for a certainty that everybody, every single person in here was born at least one time. <laughs> like, I'm looking at you, you were definitely born. You know, it's like there's, the, the details would be different, but the fact that we exist means that we were born the first time. Nicodemus was born the first time. But Jesus is having a conversation with him, and he's saying, Nicodemus, I know that you're interested in the things of God. I know that you always have been. And I know that you've wanted to teach people and give your life to the living God. I know all that stuff, but you lack something. You're missing this thing, whatever this is. Your lifetime of religious activity didn't create enough credit for you to be a part of this. There's a new thing that needs to happen. So, so we've got a few clues here. Again, we're not totally sure what being born again is or how to be it at this point in the text, but we know that for me to see and experience and know what God's doing and for me to enter in and be a part of it, both now and eternally, I have, that has to happen to me. So Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and we all have been, Right? And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now he says, this is now the, the third time he's going to say, talk about this idea of born again. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So I want to put a pin in that one, and we're going to come to that one last. Um, but he then goes on and he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he brings up this idea of wind. Now, has anybody ever seen the wind? And like we, we think, you think it's kind of a trick question, and we all think for a second, yeah, 
I've seen the wind, and what we mean is we've seen the effects of wind, and we've seen enough of those effects of wind that we know the wind is real. I mean, we live in South Florida. You know, it's like hurricanes, you know, I'm sure some of you had your insurance dropped on your roofs and you have to find new, new somebody to cover it because the wind is real, but it's invisible. So the point I want to make about this is Jesus begins to talk about this idea of being born of the Spirit, and he's essentially saying this as he brings up the wind, it's invisible, but real. So your little ones are next door, right? And especially when they're really young, probably before seven or eight years old, that's when they have a bunch of invisible make-believe, right? Like, Daddy, I shot you. Oh, you got me, buddy. That was invisible make-believe, right? Or, Daddy, come have this tea with me. Okay, honey. Oh, it's delicious. It was nothing. It was just air, but we did a little make-believe that that was real, right? But that's invisible make-believe. But we know that there are real invisible things, right? There are real invisible things. The wind is a great practical example that we're seeing. But when, you know, in doing children's ministry all these years, one of the things that you learn in childhood development is it's around seven or eight years old. Around seven or eight years old is when kids begin to process what we call abstract thought. And abstract thought is real invisible things. They begin to realize that there's such a thing as freedom or love. Like you can't pick three loves off a tree, right? You know, when we, when in children's ministry, they'll, you know, you'll do the lesson on the fruit of the spirit and it's always like the watermelon of kindness and the strawberry of self-control. And we, we create a little thing, a concrete thing for them to color in. But what we're talking about is an abstract truth, right? You know when someone's patient, you can't pick it off a tree or point to patience, but you know when someone's patient with you, when they're gentle, you know, when someone has joy. You can draw a smile, but people can fake a smile, can't they? But you know when, when a joy is a real, invisible thing that has outward effects that you measure. So as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he said a few things. He said, hey, to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And it's a real, invisible thing. And then Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? That's almost like saying, you're teaching people and you haven't learned the alphabet yet? He's saying this is the most elementary, fundamental starting point for the kingdom of God. It's just being able to see and enter it. Go back to verse 7. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So the word marvel is to like not understand something, right? So you look at it and you're like, oh man, how'd they do that? It, like that's a marvel to me. It's like if you've ever seen somebody do like magic tricks, you know, you're like, how do you do that? You know? It's like, I, it happens to me when I'm, I love sports, I love watching sports, and anytime an athlete does something exceptional, you know, you go back and you watch the highlights, and it's like, there was a catch um, J- Justin Jefferson from the Vikings had against the Bills last year. Sorry, buddy. It was, he's got the Bills hat on. Made me think of it. But anyways, 
it was an insane catch. I mean, it was like the, it looked like the defensive back was going to intercept it. But not only did Justin Jefferson catch it, but he caught it with one hand and took it away from the DB. So it was like, I marveled, like, how do you do that? Like, how does that happen? I don't understand it. So here's what Jesus is saying. Don't not understand. Don't not understand what it means to be born again. In other words, Jesus wants people to know this. That should be simple. That should be clear. You know, it's like, it's, it, like he's talking about something that's not mystical. It's real, but invisible. It's necessary to experience the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, to be a part of it, and he wants people to know it. So I'm going to transition now. We're going to kind of work through the rest of this passage, and you're going to see a beautiful thing that happens between Jesus and Nicodemus. So he goes, if I have told you, or I'm sorry, verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, it's Jesus just talking with this guy, and yet he's using a plural pronoun here, isn't he? He says, we speak of what we've seen and testify of what we know. And what he's speaking of, without with taking the mystery out of it, is he's been talking about a new spiritual birth, right? A birth from above. And he's been talking about the work of the Spirit of God, like a wind. That, like, you don't see it, but you feel and can observe the effects of it. And he's saying, right now, Nicodemus, I'm talking to you, and the Spirit of God is talking to you. He's whispering to your heart right now. He's speaking to you. And it's been my prayer, like, this is something I know. Like, okay, here I am. I'm just this stranger in a cafeteria with a bunch of you guys. I can't accomplish anything. But God can speak to people. And that's, that's all our hope and prayer is. It's like, well, Lord, you got me to work with this morning, but my confidence is in your word and the power of your spirit to speak to a person. And it's always been this way. Even when Jesus was standing in front of somebody, it was the spirit of God with Jesus that was witnessing to them, that was sharing with them. That should be a great encouragement to a lot of you guys. Maybe you're an authentic, born-again, believing Christian. You love Jesus, and you want him to use your life. And you have people that you know and love that you want them to come to know him. It's a beautiful thing to know that the Spirit of God is with you when you're talking with them, that he can whisper and say those things. There's a verse in the Bible that says salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. We don't save anybody. There's no pastor who's ever saved anybody. Only Jesus saves. So as he's talking to him, he says to him, he says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witnesses. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And there's a few different ways that this could be interpreted, but I'm going to take the simplest route and just say, I'm telling you the basics right now about coming to know me on earth. I can't even begin to talk to you about the heavenly things and all that God would like to do in and through your life. And then he says this, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, he's speaking of himself, that is the son of man who's in heaven. So let me say this. 
are there or are there not a lot of religions in the world? A lot of ways that people purport to be right with God. There's a lot of them, aren't they? The difference with Jesus is that he came from heaven to earth, died and rose again and ascended to heaven. That's the person, a person who has authority over death and has come as a missionary from the place that I want to go, that's the guy that I want advice from. Like if, if, you, if you're struggling in your marriage and you, you don't go to your friend who's been divorced three times for advice, do you? It's like, nah, that's, that's not the guy I'm going to take advice from. He might give me a, a bunch of things not to do, right? But I'm going to look for somebody who has some wisdom, some authority, some experience in that arena. So if you want to talk about the kingdom of heaven, I want, the only guy I'm really interested in listening to is the one who came down from heaven. That's the one that I care about. The one who's seen and has, he's able to say, I've spoken with the Father. These are the things that, that you need to know. So now at verse 14, something happens. And then we'll get into verse 16, which is like the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John 3, 16. But look at verse 14 and 15. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is like a weird little thing he says. It's just a couple of lines, verse 14 and 15. And what he's doing is he's referencing a very obscure passage in the book of Numbers. It's in Numbers 21. It's verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read them to you. They may or may not be on the screen here, but Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Now, the children of Israel at this time are in a sort of in-between zone. They have been rescued by God from slavery in Egypt, and they're traveling on their way to the promised land. And there's a recurring theme of complaint among the children of Israel and not trusting God. And God allows a judgment to befall them for that lack of trust, repeated lack of trust. And um, he allows these serpents, poisonous snakes, to kind of crawl in among the camp. They're called fiery serpents, I think, because when they bite you, it's like that burns like fire. And they're, they're fatal. They're poisonous asps that are biting the people among the camp. And as that happens, the people begin to cry out to God. I'll read it to you. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. By the way, this worthless bread was the manna that was appearing from heaven. We don't even want this heaven bread. I mean, when people get emotional, they get irrational, don't they? I mean, this is just the reality. It's like they cried out to be rescued from slavery, and God has made promises to bring them into the promised land, but they just, they've gotten in their feelings a little too much here. So anyways, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, no duh, and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, this is six verses in the middle of the book of Numbers. So it's like if there's a place in the Bible where you kind of go like a little brain dead, it's like somewhere around Leviticus and Numbers. It's like you, you start at the beginning of the year, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and somewhere around Numbers is where you fall asleep. So there's very few people that would know this passage. But Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, wasn't he? He knew this passage. Did you know that this passage is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible up until this point? Nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's just one little story with no explanation whatsoever. And this man, Nicodemus, playing with his food, stirred in his heart by the Spirit of God, says, I'm going to go talk to Jesus. And he goes and talks to him. And Jesus begins to talk to him about spiritual birth and another kingdom, something way beyond the religion he's known his whole life, something that his heart really has cried out for. Why does a man dedicate himself to the word of God in that way. He wanted something. And he comes to him that night, and Jesus brings up a story that he would know. You know, to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, including the Leviticus, the Numbers, the Deuteronomy. So he knew it deep down inside, and Jesus just brings it up in a second. Now I'm going to talk to you about this story for a second, then we're going to read John 3, 16 and 17, and then we're going to wrap up. So you have the people who, because of their sin, have been bitten by serpents, and it's a fatal bite. The first time that the serpent appears in the Bible represents Satan and sin, right? John chapter 3, right away. So the, the, the meaning there is not to be questioned. There's sin and a serpent and death. Those are together there. And... As the people cry out to God, you see God make a solution. And his solution, he tells Moses to make a fiery or a bronze serpent. Now, throughout the Bible, bronze is representative of judgment. So it's a serpent or sin made of bronze, judged sin. And he says to put it on a pole. Now, it says pole here, and I wouldn't get dogmatic about this, but it is my personal belief that if you were to take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, it would just slide down, wouldn't it? So in order to put it on a pole, you have to have some kind of little crossbeam up there to hang it on. So you have a pole, a piece of wood, sort of like a cross, where a judged serpent or sin is hung over it. And it's to be put in a place where people see it. And then anybody who looks at it and believes it will heal him. They were healed. That's what happens. And you know, it's like, that doesn't make any medical sense. Well, you're gonna have to trust the Lord that it's gonna work. You're gonna have to trust the Lord that that's going to work. So listen to what it says, verse 14 and 15, and then we'll read verse 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, that's a title he's using of himself, He's talking with Nicodemus right now. He says, hey, you remember that story in Numbers? You remember how the serpent was put on that pole and he was lifted up and when people looked at it, it they were healed? I'm going to be put on a pole. 
I'm going to be lifted up. You know, the serpent was lifted up. I'm going to take the sin of the world upon myself. And I'm going to accept the judgment upon me. And I will be put on a pole. And then he says this, that whoever, who? Whoever. Who does that include? Anyone. Anyone at all. Whoever. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then look at verse 16. You guys know this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's beautiful, this conversation, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's past all religion. It's past all of that. And it's talking about the love of God and the work of God to make it as simple as possible for a man or a woman or a child, regardless of anything they've ever done in their whole life, to be made right with God. Now, I kind of think kind of the last question here is how can a person be born again? How does that happen? Earlier in the Gospel of John, I want to read to you a passage, John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. And John is opening up his gospel now. He's kind of setting the stage for all that he's about to write. And he says of Jesus, he says, Jesus was in the world, came down from heaven into the world, and the world was made through him. He entered the world he made. And the world did not know him. You remember he was born, what, in a manger? And some angels showed up and celebrated him? I mean, like the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, the king of men appeared, and he's in a feeding trough for animals. The world didn't know him. He labored in anonymity. And it says, he came to his own, and that would be the Jewish people. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, listen, to become children of God. That sounds a lot like born again to me. To those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's what it means to be born again. You see that word receive? And we're going to talk a little bit about that more, and then we're going to wrap up. At our house, we have a big front window. And my couch is here, and I kind of sit on the, it's a corner couch. So that, actually, the corner is the best spot. Everyone fights for it. But I'm the biggest, and I'm the dad, and I pay the bills, so I usually get it. So that's the corner spot. I sit there, and the window's out here, and the TV's up there. So we'll be sitting there, and we're watching the TV show. And then you see somebody walking down the street going house to house. It's one of two things. It's either Jehovah's Witnesses or someone trying to sell solar panels. Those are the two things. That always happens, all right? So as they're working down the street, I think, oh, I close the shade, tell the kids, hey, lock the door, don't answer it. I don't want to receive them. I'm not interested in them being a part of my life. I am watching, I'm in the middle of binging a Netflix. I, I've got things to do, you know what I mean? It's like I got stuff to get done. I don't want them interrupting. But if I'm sitting there and 
a big old diesel truck pulls up. It's my brother who lives in North Carolina. I say, guys, Uncle Rob's here. And I open the door, and he's welcome to come in and stay as long as he wants. I receive him. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying by receive here? Receive, I would suggest that our heart has a door and a throne in it, a seat. That door can be opened, and that seat is intended for King Jesus. You were made that way. People are bad leaders of their own lives. They are. Just think of everything you stress over, you're not sure what to do or what the right decision is. We don't know. We can't see the future. We are weak. We make mistakes. We're dumb sometimes. That seat is intended for the Lord. And in Revelation, it says that he stands at the door and knocks. And if any man would open, he would come into him and sup with him. Any man. Any woman, any child, that sounds like whoever. So here it says here, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I, I, I love it. I love this idea that anybody at all could become God's child. In John 3.16, he says, to as many as believed him. And here it says receive. And I think they just kind of go hand in hand. It's saying, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your work and your character. And I welcome you in. You are welcome in my heart. And you have a permanent place here. And that begins a new life. It doesn't mean that you instantly become perfect. It doesn't mean that, you know, now that I'm a child of God, I'll get no red lights anymore. It's all green lights the rest of my life, you know. It doesn't mean any of that. Jesus said in this world you'd have trouble. But what it does mean is you've authentically begun with the Lord. Something has actually happened and started. I want to finish with this. There's really kind of three reasons. This is just kind of my hope for today. The first one is that if you're a Christian and you've never heard these phrases, you don't ever have to have heard the phrase born again to have actually trusted in Jesus and been born again. I mean, all babies can't say that they were born, but they're actually born. Do you understand? Like, for, for 40 years, the other gospels existed and people were putting their faith in Christ. And they were being born again, even if they couldn't define it. But God, in his wisdom, saw that it's worth making this clearer for my people to understand what, what it is that has happened in them. They've become a child of God and have entered into the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first thing, is just for you as a believer, if you are one, if you're, you're a born-again Christian, if you've been born from above, if you've been born of the Spirit of God, you've placed your trust in Christ, just if you know what a wonderful thing has been done for you. That's the first thing. The second hope that I had today is that you would be equipped through this to help people come to know Jesus. Early on when I started to serve the Lord, I was teaching kids in children's ministry, and I wanted so bad to lead people to Jesus. I just was no good at it. 
You know, it's like, you know, guys like evangelists like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie, it's like they open their mouth, say something stupid, and 50 people get saved. You know what I mean? It's like, why can't I be stupid like that? You know, it's like, it, you know, it's like this gift of evangelism that some people have, that some people really do have, and that I learned over time I don't have. But about five years ago, and this is after a lifetime of ministry and serving God's people and just being a blessing and loving people and being used of God in a lot of other ways. I began in counseling sessions or private conversations, I began to notice sometimes that maybe the person that I was talking with didn't really know God. You had a feeling about them. Like they're coming to church, but I don't know that they're born again. And so I took, I, it became my habit or my practice to just sit down and be like, hey, have you ever read John chapter 3? Like, they're in for a marriage counseling. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, let's take a second and I want to read from John chapter 3 to you. And I give a very abbreviated version of what I've taught you guys today. And I just began to see people just get saved, come to know the Lord. In other words, I'm not a good evangelist, but John is. That's what the word gospel means, it's, Gospel is evangel. That's what it is. And I want to suggest to you that if it's your heart's cry, you have people you know and that you love, that you want them to come to know Jesus, pray for an opportunity to share these things with them. It's no longer your words then. They can't kind of discredit you. It's, it's what, this is just what the Bible says. Can I share with you? It's awesome. And so that was the second thing. And then my third thing was this. And I'm not because we're out of time. I've gone long as usual. I'm sorry. I, I do want to say that you might be here today and you may have been, the Spirit of God may have been stirring you. It may have been stirring you right now. I just want to say that at some point soon, if that's happening, get things settled with Jesus and welcome him into your life. I'm not going to do an altar call. I'm not going to have anybody close their hands, eyes, and raise their hand if they want to receive Jesus. I mean, if you'd love to come talk to me afterwards, I'd love to talk to you. That's fine. But if it's tonight in your bed or today in your car before you leave the parking lot or if it's three weeks from now as you get a few questions answered, receive Jesus. Welcome him. Be born again. Become a part of that family and experience something that isn't dry, dead religion, but it's an authentic being born again and a child of the living God. It's, it's all the difference in the world right there. I'm going to pray and we'll wrap up. Father, I want to thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of just teaching these sweet people this morning. And thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the truths in this passage. Lord, I'm so happy that you invited me into your kingdom and then you drew me by your spirit. And I want to pray right now that your spirit would be moving and stirring the hearts of these people. And maybe there's a few that are saying privately, inwardly, by themselves, the same way Nicodemus was privately and and secretly coming to Jesus. Maybe there's some coming to you right now like that. Would you meet with them? And would you, by your spirit, confirm in their hearts um, the truth of what King Jesus said? And 
would you stir them to respond to you, Lord? I thank you that I myself in an apartment in Tallahassee, I responded to you, Lord, and you changed the rest of my life. You changed me. You saved me from so much, Lord. So, Jesus, you're so good. Thank you that you have not come to condemn but to save. We love you.